Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Priest King. Our study on Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. For more information and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Well, we'll get ready to pray for the Word. As we pray for the Word, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that um, President Trump has declared today a national day of prayer to pray over this issue. And so I was telling someone in the office, I really do feel like if the church rises up and prays, I think we're going to see some things break. I think one of the things we need to break is the spirit of fear that's trying to control and manipulate. Um, And so as we pray for the word, I'm going to start by praying for that. If you would just kind of agree with me in prayer and lean in. And I do want to encourage you, take some time today, mark out a little time this afternoon just to sit before the Lord and ask for God's hand in the midst of all of this. Is that okay? All right, let's pray over the over the virus. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, we just ask um, for your intervention. We just say that no weapon formed against your people will prosper. We ask that all the plans, the plotting, and the schemes of hell would sit down right now in the name of Jesus. Father, we say that um, fear and intimidation, um, anxiety, um, it's not our God. It does not possess our hearts nor our thinking. So we ask in Jesus' name that the sound mind given to us by the Holy Spirit would begin to settle over your people. God, we thank you for victory in Jesus. Lord, There, we have no apology for the fact that we are a people who still believe in the gifts of the Spirit, who still believe in the power of the Spirit. So we ask for a healing anointing to be poured out on your church today. We ask for signs, wonders, and miracles. Lord, in Jesus' name, I ask for strong, Spirit-filled people to stand up in faith, to begin to proclaim truth and lay their hands on the sick and see people delivered from all kinds of illnesses, God, not just this issue. And we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus that more we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah. 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 And God, we we ask in Jesus' name that you would wash us in the water of your word. Lord, we have a sobering scripture to read this morning in the study, and so we ask that your hand would be in the midst. Lord, we want to hear, encounter, experience your spirit, God. Lord, we didn't come here for any man's intellect. We came to submit ourselves under the divinely inspired word of God, the Bible, the scripture. Breathe on us, we pray this morning. Somebody say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Are you guys standing in faith right now? Don't let the fear get you. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 reads, Their foot shall slide in due time. That was the single verse that Jonathan Edwards expounded upon in the most famous sermon ever penned, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In his application section, remember we talked about the way that the Puritans preached before. Edwards not a Puritan, but a son of the Puritans. Um, the conclusion of the sermon always had a big application section. In the application section of, sermons, of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, um, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this. The use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. And there is hell's wide gaping mouth open. And you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that upholds you, he continues. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. 
and descend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. If God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. The imagery that Jonathan Edwards used was striking, it was rattling, and it was awfully accurate. These words shook a generation from her slumber. When we talk about the great awakenings, this is what we're talking about. Edwards writing sinners in the hands of the angry God. People become, they were shook awake to the reality that that judgment is coming. And that there's only one way to escape the judgment of God. It's to cling to the cross of Jesus. To wash yourself in the blood of the sacrifice of Calvary. That awakening caused them to call on God for mercy. To run to the cross of Christ. Now it's been a strange thing for me to live in a day where we pray for revival. We talk a lot about the third great awakening. Wanting the third great awakening to shake our nation. But in that context we refuse to talk about sin, judgment, death or the final, the final judgment day. We pray for the third great awakening and that's what we're after while denying the premises that shook awake the, the nation for the first two. We use the word revival and remove from it any sense of historical contextual meaning. We want signs and wonders is what we mean when we say revival. And, and they had signs and wonders in the first uh, and second great awakening. If you take the time to read Edwards, who again was a Calvinist, the son of Puritan, was a highly intellectual person. When you take the time to read what he wrote about manifestations of the spirit in revival, he talked about things like people shaking under the, the spirit, people falling. They, they had signs. They had manifestations of power. But what they wanted ultimately was souls to be born again, to come to Jesus, to escape the coming the coming judgment and for the cross of Jesus to be exalted above all else. Y'all ain't hearing what I have to say today. I have this stark memory of Steve Hill, well, I watch it on YouTube, Steve Hill walking across the stage of Brownsville during the Brownsville revival with an axe laid over his shoulder, preaching from the text, um, the axe is already laid to the roots and he's preaching on judgment and he's calling uh, people to repentance. One of my favorite theologians of the day. Um, oh, shoot, I'm going to get myself in a hole I don't want to get in. I got a little extra time today because we didn't meet and greet. So take that, suckers. One of my favorite uh, theologians alive today, I remember listening to him speak once. And he said that he was watching. Uh, I may say too much, but here we go. He was watching the, um, uh, the Lakeland outpouring, what was called the Lakeland outpouring. Um, and he said he watched it for nights. It was on one of those, you know, TBN or God TV. And he watched it and he watched it and he watched it. And he's not a man who would say if there are signs and wonders of people praying for healing, that it's not of God. He's not that kind of, of, of pastor. He believes in the gifts of the spirit. And so he was watching thinking, is this of God? Is this of God? And he said he watched for, for some nights. And, and, and he said, not once was the gospel ever presented. He said, not once was there ever a, hey, Jesus died to wash you of your sin. And if you would come to the cross, you could be born again. There was no presentation of the gospel ever. And he said, that's what led him to conclude that this thing was wacky from the start. And it would come out later that there was major sin uh, uh, and, and the, the, the Lakeland outpouring 
had major issues. Um, but he said that the clear sign of the fact that it had issues was that the gospel was never presented. Now, we've mocked fire and brimstone preachers for decades now. Maybe with some legitimacy, when Edwards preached sinners in the hands of the angry God, then everyone wanted to preach sermons about judgment. And, 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 and biblical judgment is a thoroughly scriptural concept, but there are other scriptural ideas to be explored, certainly. So maybe it was okay to say, hey, talk about something else for a while. Um, but we mocked it so much so that we have an entire generation of preachers who have never preached on judgment. And we had an entire generation of preachers who never talked about judgment. And then we now live in an entire generation of people who don't believe in it at all. When one generation quit talking about the idea of God's wrath, the next generation denies that it even exists. We've so ignored the concept of God's righteous wrath, frustration towards wickedness, intention to punish all those who reject his son, that an entire generation refuses to acknowledge these truths are true. Now, we all read the scripture with our own cultural emphasis and our own cultural bend. We come to the scripture with a lens Um, And we interpret everything through that lens. And a lot of trying to understand the Bible is trying to deconstruct that lens and allow the scripture to say to us what it actually intends to say to us. We bring to the Bible our own baggage, preconceived ideas and notions. and, And naturally, we have to work against those ideas and notions to be able to receive what's actually being said. Now, Eastern cultures are often marked with a strong emphasis of justice, honor, justice. The idea of capital punishment in Eastern cultures is oftentimes embedded into the very fabric of society. They have this this emphasis in culture. You do the crime, you do the time, you make the bed, now lie in it. That kind of clear and dry administration of justice is woven into their thinking. Their societies can struggle with the gospel presentation because it presents a God who is gracious and extends mercy, is willing to cast our sins from the East to the West. Their cultural upbringing causes them to demand individual justice. And they they hear the gospel and say, that can't be right because God can't pass over sins. In recent generations, in Western culture, we've swung the pendulum in the other direction. We value mercy, forgiveness, and unwavering compassion above all else. Unwavering mercy is our chief ethic, so much so that we've perverted what mercy even really means. We expect God to be gracious, even demand that God accepts all people, no matter what kind of open rebellion they're living in. Even if we spit in God's face, mock his son, live in total rebellion, our culture says, no, God is loving and he is just the cosmic grandfather waiting to cuddle you. Now, we don't struggle with the aspect of the gospel that offers forgiveness like those in the East. We openly reject any suggestion of divine justice, wrath, or future judgment. Now, I want you to see this morning that the cross is a strange, mystical union of these two concepts. In the cross, we see God's perfect total extravagant love we see God's perfect forgiveness God's ultimate desire for mercy that mercy would triumph over judgment in the cross we see a God hung before us born naked exposed with with
in the cross, we see a father willing to embrace you even after decades of mocking him, spitting in his face, rebellion. We see the extreme kindness of a father, the extreme kindness of Jesus, who's, who's naked, exposed, literally defecating on himself, bleeding, dripping, the, the God of the universe judged because he loves you, okay? We see in the cross God loving you despite your gross, wicked sin. And in the cross... We see God's frustration with your sin. In the cross, we see God's righteous judgment towards sin. In the cross, we see God's hatred for wickedness and rebellion. Now, in our Western rejection of the concepts of wrath, justice, and final judgment, we've begun to deconstruct the gospel concepts, the gospel narrative, and the doctrines surrounding the cross of Jesus. There's a great debate in our day surrounding the idea of penal substitution. I want you to say that with me this morning, penal substitution. You guys were waiting to talk about this all week. Um, penal, obviously, directly related to the idea of penalty. Penal substitution. Um, there are some who are actively resisting any notion that God hates sin, judges sinners, or that God will have justice on the last day. And so they've attempted to throw away the aspect of the cross which, which absorbs the wrath of God. On the cross, all of the wrath of God was absorbed in that sacrifice. And we've begun to try to throw away that teaching because, well, we don't want God to have any wrath at all. The, the, the debate amongst theologians, people in our culture, um, there's often an emphasis on a doctrine called Christus Victor. Christus Victor means that on the cross, Jesus dealt with sin and death. Jesus conquered sin and he conquered death. And they teach that the early church only proclaimed Christus Victor, that on the cross, Jesus was primarily dealing with sin and death. Now, we believe that on the cross, Jesus dealt with sin and death. We believe Christus Victor totally. But the problem is, is that the early church did not just teach Christus Victor. They also taught penal substitution. Paul taught penal substitution. The atonement did more than we can get our hands around in one setting. But those who oppose this plainly biblical, historical Christian doctrine, they use exaggerated language, you know, like politicians do. These big, exaggerated statements trying to shock you into their position. It's actually really insulting because they think you're too slow to think through what's actually being said. And so they say things like this. God is not into divine child abuse. God did not murder his son to feel better about you. It's a shocking argument at first glance. At second glance, you realize it's a stupid one. First, Jesus is not a child. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the maker of all things. He was perfectly capable of getting off of that cross. He stayed there willingly. Jesus is not a child. Jesus is the one who spoke creation into existence. Ex nihilo. He created matter out of nothing. He's the one who spoke to a storm and made that thing sit down. It's Jesus who spoke to demons and had them tremble. Jesus, God, this is not child abuse. This is the incarnate, eternal word of God hung on a tree for your curse becoming a curse. 
Argument is ridiculous. Second, God the Father and God the Son are distinct persons, but totally unified. The Father and the Son share the same character. If the Father has wrath towards sin, then the Son has wrath towards sin. Therefore, Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world, not only to appease the Father's need to justice, but to appease his own need for justice. Third, the Father and the Son were agreed upon the cross from the foundation of creation. It was Jesus' intention from the foundation of creation, from eternity past to head to the cross. When he was incarnate, when he became flesh and blood, he knew from that moment the cross was his destination. It is not this image that, that the Son is kind and the Father is cruel and the Son needed to die to appease the cruel angry father that's a false image of atonement the father and the son agreed upon the death of jesus from eternity past and it broke the heart of god as much as it broke the flesh of the son finally this argument is ridiculous because the scriptures teach it teach penal substitution the scriptures say that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of god galatians chapter 3 teaches that jesus became a curse for you on the tree john wrote that he was the propitiation for our sins say that word with me propitiation no you've been wondering about that word the word propitiation literally means that 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 when someone is angry or frustrated, there is, there is a propitiation, something that causes that anger and frustration to subside. And so Jesus being the propitiation for our sins means that God's righteous anger towards sin, it subsided, it was appeased, it settled itself at the cross of Jesus. Jesus is the propitiation of our sin. He is our penal substitutionary atonement. He dealt with God's wrath on the cross. Those who refuse to come to the cross will still experience God's wrath. Those who partake in the new covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus will be passed over. The gospel presentation is this simple. If there is blood on the doorpost, the angel of death passes. If there is no blood on the doorpost, the angel of death brings judgment. To rid yourself, to try, to try to twist theology in the sense of theology, meaning your understanding of who God is. To try to rob from God's character any sense of divine wrath, any sense of judgment, any sense of justice. To, to, to rid God of that is to throw away the need for the cross and is to undercut and undervalue the entire gospel message. Those who refuse to come to Christ will receive eternal punishment. Hell. Hell is still a biblical concept. I know America doesn't like hell. Get over it. It's a biblical concept. God is gracious, patient, kind. But you need to know that God's patience will wear out. He is patient. He is not passive. Passivity ignores a problem. Patience gives space for a person to come and ask for forgiveness. And for the patient says, I don't, I'm not going to jump and, and cut someone down immediately. Patient says, we, let's give it a little space and see if this person will come to, to repentance. Um, passivity ignores a problem totally. God is not ignoring the problem of sin and evil. He is patiently waiting for the world to come to repentance. But he's not passive. He's going to deal with it. 
If you are in Christ Jesus, his love towards you knows no bounds. You have nothing to earn, nothing to prove. You will be passed over. If you are not in Christ Jesus, in the words of Edwards, you are heavy as lead. And the moment God's hands let you go, you will sink directly towards hell. If that's offensive to you, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the scripture. I understand that culture has taught us that God being loved means that God embraces everyone no matter their decision to reject him, dishonor his son, and live in open rebellion. I understand that's what culture teaches. That's not what scripture teaches. I had a young girl in a class I was teaching once say that she said, I like to think of God like this. She said, my dad, she had a good dad, obviously. She said, my dad disciplined me. She said, my dad would spank me. She said, my dad would ground me. But she said, I always knew that my dad loved me. My dad didn't judge me, but he did discipline me. She said, that's how God is. God, God doesn't judge people, but he will discipline. And I said, well, that's, that's actually a true statement for those of us who are in Jesus. Those of us who are children of God in the unique sense that we're in covenant with the Father. God does not judge us. He will discipline us, chastise us, the scripture says. But God does not judge us. But what she was trying to say is that God judges no one. And so I asked her the question this. I said, okay, so you're saying that God would never, that, that God will never judge because your father would never judge you, but he would discipline you. And I said, so tell me what would happen if your father came home and your neighbor had you tied up and was sexually abusing you. She said, um, I have no doubt my, my father would kill him. And, and I said, point proven. Be, because, because love and wrath are logically consistent. Right? Like, I love my daughters. Put your hand on them, I'll cut you down. You, you see what I'm saying? Love and, love and wrath are not inconsistent. You actually cannot love without wrath. If, if I watched you smack my wife and stood there and chuckled, no one would say, Caleb really loves his wife. They're saying someone, that kid needs to do something with himself. If you put your hand in my wife and I cut you down real quick, everyone would say, good God, don't touch his wife. Love and wrath aren't inconsistent. They're perfectly consistent. God's love for the world demands, it demands that God is frustrated with wickedness. It demands that God is frustrated with child molestation. It demands that God's frustrated with sex trafficking. It demands that God's frustrated with a lack of justice in our legal system. It demands that God's frustrated with racism. It demands that God's frustrated with the pornography industry. It demands that God's frustrated. Now, I'll step out of theology land for a moment to make a couple remarks before we approach the scripture this morning. Studies show clearly that the church in the West is quickly declining. The church in America is declining. Churches in America are closing their doors every day. What studies show more accurately is that liberal churches in America are declining and and traditional Bible teaching churches are growing at a steady rate. What does that mean? The churches that have refused the Bible and have refused any concept of God's wrath and God's judgment, they begin to walk away from the cross. Why do you need the cross if there's no judgment to come? Why give your money to missions? Why evangelize if all roads lead to home and God is the ultimate cuddly grandfather waiting to grab us all and just squeeze us? Why why evangelize? Why disciple your kids? Let them follow their hearts. And and the churches that are walking away from biblical truth are actually the ones that are quickly declining. Why must we maintain the basic biblical doctrines of hell, divine justice, and future judgment? I want you to listen to me very closely. Why must we maintain the basic biblical doctrines of hell, divine justice, and future judgment? 
one, because they are biblically true. And we as a church are committed to sola scriptura. That's the doctrine that means that the scripture alone is our authority. If the Bible teaches it, we believe it, okay? Why must we embrace biblical judgment? Hell, justice, because the Bible teaches it. Two, because they are foundational to the holy character of God. Our mission flows from the revelation of God's character. Three, because these teachings sober us up to the urgency of our call to evangelize and disciple. People are like lead falling towards hell daily. That's a sober reality, a sober truth. That sober reality is intended to cause you to get serious about sharing the gospel. The sobering truth that hell is, is hot and long intends to drive you to your knees to pray for your lost loved ones. Why are churches dying that quit on hell? Because there's no need to cry out to God in prayer for your loved ones if you don't believe that there's any judgment coming. God is love. His love is beckoning all men to come to Christ before the final hour. God in his graciousness and his kindness is calling all people home. He is drawing all men. The scripture says that he is not slow, but he's patient, wishing that all would reach repentance. God's love wants all people to come to him. He's drawing them with urgency because an hour is coming when he will set all things right. Will you participate in God's urgency or not? has largely to deal with the fact of whether or not you're willing to embrace the biblical truth that God has wrath. So today we're going to close Psalm 110. We'll discuss the final verse of the psalm, and by consequence, we'll slide into the concept of final judgment. Now we're going to read the whole of the psalm again. I'll give you a little bit of context for those of you who are just jumping in with us, and then we'll jump into it. You guys ready? Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He'll drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Today, we study verse 5, 6, and 7. I'll read it to you one more time. The Lord is at your right hand, speaking of Messiah. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So for context, again, this is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. The psalm is broken up in two stanzas. The first stanza opens with, The Lord says to my Lord, a holy decree. Father God says to the Son, Sit down on an eternal throne of heaven and earth. Sit down at my right hand. You will be king of heaven, earth, all of existence. The second stanza opens with a solemn oath, which we studied last week. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the idea of Jesus' priesthood, the psalmist begins to work towards the end of all things. And so he is king, he is priest, and now he is final conqueror and ultimate judge. This thought moves us, slides us towards the idea of the end of all things. The sit down until has now run its course and Jesus stands up from his throne to bring final justice, final judgment. First, 
It's significant to recognize that Jesus is declared priest forever before he comes to conquer. God always gives space for repentance. God always gives time for mercy. God always extends the hand of grace before he brings the hand of judgment. Jesus is a priest sitting on the throne, waiting, giving people opportunity and space. He's beckoning, calling us to labor in the harvest, longing to show mercy to the nations. He spreads his arm, aches for the prodigal son to come home. He draws people. He orchestrates specific situations, working to prod us towards salvation. Jesus is first our priest. We exist, we live in the age of the priestly ministry of Jesus. We are living in the time in which Jesus is extending grace, calling people, come receive mercy, come to the cross of Jesus. All the while, Jesus did not owe us mercy. He could have just brought judgment and brought it swiftly and it would have been right of him. But he chose to offer mercy by the crucifixion and to extend this period of grace in hopes that you and I will come under the blood of Jesus and be passed over. Second, the Lord is at the right hand of the Messiah. There is no disharmony in the Godhead. The Father and the Son walk hand in hand towards the final day of judgment. In perfect unity, the persons of the Trinity march forward with total agreement. The Father is not the angry one, and the Son is not the the cosmic happy pill. The Son's not pleading with the Father, smoke a little weed and chill out. They're in agreement. You're like, you ain't allowed to say weed in church. I am. I am. They do nothing without absolute unification. Not for one moment in all of history have they been in disagreement, isolated in their perspectives or intentions. We talk about the final day. When we talk about final wrath, you need to understand that Jesus is the conqueror. Okay? The Jesus who's been gracious and kind and patient. The one who is love, who is so good to us. That Jesus is the Jesus who will conquer. I want you to know this morning that I don't agree with the teaching. I don't, I don't think it's biblical at all to teach that the Father turned his back on the Son at the cross. We often teach that at the cross was the first time that Jesus ever, um, ever existed without the Father's um, perfect presence. I, I don't think that that's a biblical teaching at all. I don't think that the Father walked away from the Son at the cross. The Trinity was not fragmented. Um, we teach that because of Jesus' words. When Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but anyone who's biblically literate, That was a harsh way to say anyone who reads the Bible um, understands that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, which opens. Imagine this with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And so Jesus quotes Psalm 22, which is a psalm in which the psalmist begins with expressing the fact that it feels like he's forsaken. And so the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you not hear my prayers? Are you not listening? The conclusion of the psalm um, ends with the psalmist being victorious because God was listening and God was hearing his prayers and God does redeem and God does restore and God makes the psalmist victorious. And so imagine Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone standing around knows exactly what he's quoting. And the point of the psalm is that when it looks like God has forsaken me, 
Give it a little time and you'll realize that he has he is redeeming and working and and he will cause me to be victorious. So Jesus is saying to those who are watching his crucifixion, look, look, it, it looks like God's turned his back on me. You just wait, boy. You just wait. So the, the Trinity is not fragmented. It has never been fa- fractured. The, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are perfectly united in, in all of their plans and purposes and intentions. And so I, I'm trying to break down in your mind this, this idea that we carry that God is angry and the Son is really cushy. Um, um, they are perfectly united in this plan. And the Father hurt as much as Jesus hurt at the moment of the cross. Can you imagine watching your son be crucified? What kind of pain you experience? The Father didn't turn his back. He looked on with the Son. The Scriptures say that God will never leave us or forsake us. you think that God leaves or forsakes the Son? As if they can be fragmented anyway. Um, and so the Father is perfectly in tune with the crucifixion. God is not cuddly, or, or the Son's not cuddly, and Jesus is angry, or Father's angry. They're, they're both love, and they are both angry. Okay? In the Spirit, they possess the exact same nature. They are perfectly unified. Perfectly unified. The son expresses frustration multiple times in his earthly ministry. He flips over tables. How dare you make my father's house a den of thieves? He says things like this to Capernaum. Uh, It'll be better for you. uh, It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. If they had seen the signs and wonders that you see, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. What is Jesus saying to an entire city? On the last day, you're going to get it, man. What Sodom and Gomorrah experienced, you have coming for you much worse. I'm trying to get you to embrace the full character of Jesus, of the Godhead. I understand that we've so manipulated and twisted in modern Western culture. But I want you to see that the scriptures teach that Jesus has wrath. God is at his right hand. I'll move to my next point. Oh gosh, I skipped a bunch. Sleep deprivation. Getting me, y'all. God is at the right hand of the Messiah. And the scripture says, in verse 5, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Now, I don't care. Y'all forgive me. I am in the flesh. I don't care what Joel Osteen may have led you to believe. But God has a day of wrath. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Messiah has a day of wrath. That is a thorough biblical teaching. I know Joel's always smiling and God bless him for it. But the scriptures say that God has a coming day of wrath. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. You need to feel the weight of that reality. There is a day coming where Messiah Jesus comes with wrath and he shatters kings. Those who had the unique role of executing justice would be the first to be cast down. Those who felt above the rule of law. Those who have felt safe, protected, important, like their opinion and their voice always matters. Those who seem invincible, feel invincible. They will be shattered. They will crumble. They are crushed, thoroughly crushed into tiny little pieces on the day of Jesus' coming. They will be extinguished, shattered, stomped on the day of the wrath of Messiah. 
chiefs, heads of regions, chiefs of the lands. He utterly destroys, Psalm 110 says. All those in high places who have refused to bow their knee to Jesus will be squandered, squashed, crumble. Next, he will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill the nations with corpses. The king's chiefs are shattered, then the nations are judged, filled with dead bodies. Now, in this conversation, these, again, in Western culture, ideas are often thrown. God's not judgmental, and God is not a murderer. They say that about Jesus. God did not murder Jesus. God's not going to murder people on the last day. I want you to think carefully, man. Use your brain. You got one, my God, use it. Israel is forbidden to murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall not. Everybody finish it. Thou shall not. Good God, you're smart. Um, There are many instances in the law when Israel's told, if you find someone worshiping a false god, what are they to do? Stone them. Murder and capital punishment are two totally different things. When a man... ah, I'm... I'm reading this. Uh, someone gave me a book on uh, on the um, Emanuel shootings, the Charleston shootings. So I'm reading this book and, about Dylan Roof who walked into Emanuel and shot uh, those individuals in a Bible study. And so I'm thinking about this case. Um, when, when, when Dylan Roof goes before a judge and he's um, given the death sentence, no one looks at the judge and says, the judge is a murderer. You're a murderer. No, the judge's responsibility is to execute justice. God has never murdered a single individual. God has struck down many people in history, the scriptures say. God never murdered a person. He's executed justice. No one looks at a jury who comes to a death sentence and says, the jury, you're filled with a bunch of murderers. No. Jesus will not murder the nations, but he will execute justice. He has the unique responsibility as the sovereign God of the universe to bring justice to all things. I've often said, and I want to say it to you again, it is funny that we demand justice of our legal system. And so if a judge were to, um, for instance, using that case, if the judge were just to say, you know what, I'm going to let this kid off. I I like him. Let's just call it even, man. Go home to your mama. Um, We would freak. We would totally freak. Because it's not just. It's not right. God has the unique responsibility to bring justice, rightness to all things. Jesus is not a murderer, but he is the just judge who will bring punishment. He will punish all those who refuse his grace, all those who've lived by the flesh, all those who are proud, all those who refuse to come to him with repentance, all those who spit in the face of the cross, denied his mercy. Every nation will experience it. We are not exempt. We will not hide behind our in God we trust. You better be sure, be sure, be sure that you trust God in your own heart. Every American that does not bow their knee to Jesus will be crushed. And the final line of our scripture today. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The psalmist intends to paint almost a cinematic picture for you. He wants you to imagine the Messiah covered in sweat, dirt, and blood. After a long day of battle, he's just crushed kings and chief, filled the nations with corpses. He's tired. He, he, he bends his knee by a brook. He's 
dips his head low, scoops water, and drinks to refresh himself, and then he stands up the victorious king. It is finished. It has been accomplished. He has done it. The psalmist wants you to picture Messiah, blood drenched, sweat covered, dirt in his nails. The job is done. He stands in victory. Now, blood will be spilled, nations will be conquered, kings will be crushed, judgment will be pronounced, eternal judgment will be pronounced. That's truth. Is it truth that we should celebrate? Will those in Christ celebrate the Messiah's victory as he shatters kings and crushes chiefs and fills the nation with corpses? I don't think so. I don't think on the last day when judgment's finally brought, I don't think confetti's going to fall out of the sky and land all over the blood and we're going to rejoice. I don't, I don't think anyone's going to be excited about that. If someone, I'm sorry, I'm filled with analogies this morning, but if someone breaks into my house tonight and tries to harm my kids and I, and I walk and grab one of the shotguns and lay into them, um, I'm not celebrating that. It would be right you step in my house and try to harm my kids, you're going you're gonna to meet a barrel. I promise you that. It would be right. I'm not celebrating it. Best case scenario, like, go get yourself an education, man. Get off the drugs. Don't be breaking into my house. Raise a family. Be a, somebody in society who's supporting. Best case scenario is this never happened, right? You understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing. When, when, when capital punishment today in our land is, is executed, nobody's celebrating that. It's right, it's just, but I'm not giggling. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? It's somber. It's sober. Why is God patiently waiting? He's not excited about it. Scripture says that, that, that he wishes that all would reach repentance. God's not, Jesus is not a, a racehorse banging against the gate saying, I can't wait to shatter kings. It's his responsibility to bring justice. Not excited about it. What is Jesus excited about? He's excited about his church filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, seeing thousands come to him and receiving mercy. That's what Jesus is excited about. Am I excited about the doctrine of hell? No. No. Does my lack of excitement make it any less true? No. So in conclusion, I'll stop yakking this morning. Somebody come play an instrument. Lift the mood, hallelujah. Don't, don't, don't go in a minor key, okay? Give me something happy. We won't celebrate on the day when Jesus brings final judgment. I don't think so. We'll celebrate the reprieve. In the same sense that, like, in that analogy, someone breaks into my house, tries to harm my daughter, put a barrel to him. Um, there, there's, a, there's a reprieve, right? Oh, thank God that's over. There's a deep breath. Thank God you're safe. We'll celebrate the fact that um, wickedness will be done. We'll celebrate the fact that um, 
sex trafficking will be a faint memory in the past. We'll celebrate the fact that not another child will ever be sexually molested or abused. We will celebrate the fact that cancer is finished. We'll celebrate the fact that not one of our children will ever be riddled with tumors again. We'll, we'll celebrate all of that. We won't, we, won't, we won't celebrate people being punished. We'll be thankful that the blood of Jesus washed us is what we'll be. There will be a reprieve. But these truths are sobering. They're somber and they're intended to be. They're somber for the heart of God. You hear me? Again, why does this doctrine matter? Because it's the Bible. Because it's what God says about the future. You can deny it. It doesn't change God's mind about the future. Two, it's not a doctrine or truth that's necessarily celebrated. I'm not asking you to be excited about hell, but I am asking you to recognize its reality and to be motivated to see your friends, family, and co-workers escape its flames. I am asking you to live with the reality of hell and pray that your grandkids come to the mercy of Jesus. I am asking you to allow these truths to permeate your thought life and motivate you to do something about it. I'm asking you to get serious about the gospel because Jesus is serious about the gospel. The sobriety of these doctrines produce something in us. A fervency, an urgency, a zeal, a clarity of mission. The sobriety of this doctrine produces clarity of mission. What is the church about? Are we supposed to sit around and just hug each other and pat each other? Is that all the church does? By God, no, there's a real hell that we're supposed to be contending with. You understand what I'm saying? The churches that begin to decline, they slip into this form of, 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 of social Christianity where everything's about, about high-fiving and hugging and loving and all of that's good. We should care for the orphans and widows and we do. We, we're going to keep loving and hugging and high-fiving but, but there's a mission underneath it which, which says hell's real and we have the solution. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the cross of Christ. He died an awful death so that you didn't have to experience it. Escape hell's fire today, friend. That's, that doctrine drives our mission. So what do we do with this? Caleb had to bring the hard word today. Y'all like, I'm visiting your church. I ain't coming back. That's okay. That's all right. What do we do with this first? If you are not in Jesus, if you've never given your life to Jesus, If you've never confessed him as Lord and Savior. If you've never bowed your knee, come to the cross, received forgiveness and mercy. I want you to know that the Bible teaches that hell is hot and long. And judgment is coming swiftly. I didn't make that up. That's the scripture. If you are not in Jesus this morning, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, you are like lead falling towards eternal fire. And the moment you pass, you will experience judgment. I also want you to know if you're not in Jesus this morning that Jesus really, really loves you so much so that he got on the cross of Calvary, allowed people to spit in his face, urinated, defecated on himself in front of his family, his friends, his town. He was stripped naked. His body was slashed. His back torn to ribbons. His blood was shed. He experienced torture. His head, his skull crushed with the crown of thorns. Blood drips, tears flow. He's thirsty, crying out on the cross. He did all that because he didn't want you to go to hell. That's why he did it. 
You want some good theological truth? He did it because he didn't want you to go to hell. If you go to hell, it'll be your own fault. You'll jump over his dead body to get there. You hear me? You will jump over the dead body of Jesus to get to hell. He has done everything in his power to to offer forgiveness and mercy to you. If you are not in Jesus this morning, you are headed towards destruction. And I am offering you, according to the scripture, grace, mercy, a way out. Come to Jesus. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.